1: Welcome to this month's meeting of the Shyness Support Group. I am so glad to see so many old faces back in the room. Uh, Hopefully we can improve on last month's meeting when nobody talked for three hours. Okay, who wants to kick off the conversation? Anybody? How about you, Betsy? Tell us something that happened to you since the last meeting. You know, there there must be something.
2: Mm, No.
1: Okay, you're saying that during the past month, 30 whole days, nothing noteworthy occurred. That's right. So you will not be sharing with us tonight?
3: No, I, I will not.
1: Okay, how about you, Ryan? Um, how did your shyness manifest itself this month?
3: I went to, well, I was going to go to, you know what? Could you skip over me?
1: I could. I could do that. Okay, well, that brings me to Lydia. Uh, Lydia, you look like you have something to say. I... I do. Well, go ahead. Maybe I could. If... uh, Would it be possible for everyone else to wait out in the hall? Let me explain something. This is a shyness support group. Notice the presence of the word group in the title. The, the idea is that you talk to the group. And that they support you. Why is that so hard for you people to grasp?
2: Uh, you're kind of yelling.
1: That's because I come in here month after month volunteering my time for you f-ing recluses and you sit there like somebody carved you all out of a dead tree. Now somebody talk! You! You're new here! Say something!
2: Well, I went out to dinner with some friends last week, and we wound up at a pizza place, but there's only a certain kind of pizza I can eat, and they didn't want that kind. So they said, just get a salad while we have pizza. But that made me feel left out, so I said, no. There's a great Chinese place two doors down, and they I'm have... I'm going to stop
1: you right there. This is great, but are you sure you have shyness? Remind me what shyness is again? It's when you,
2: you know...
3: Talking to people is really... It's so. Okay,
2: I don't have that. I think I have, like, some kind of gluten sensitivity.
1: Okay, you get out. In fact, everybody get out. Shyness support group is over, except for you. What's your name? Betsy? You introduce the show. I can't. Do it.
2: And now Colin McEnroe.
4: <laughs> All right. That is uh, a Shyness support group. And thanks to our uh, large group of uh, performers drafted. Uh, against their will at the last minute, into doing that. We're doing a show today about shyness. I'm only going to mention this once or twice that while we're doing the show on shyness, which will sound to all of you who are listening on the radio right now or on your computers later or whatever, like one of our normal shows, but we're also doing it in a different format. We're doing it in something that we've tried once before and we intend to try a lot in the future. Uh, it is a format that allows the deaf community, uh, to participate in the show, uh, to uh, experience the show through interpreters who are doing um, American Sign Language right now. So on Facebook Live, on the Colin McEnroe Show page, uh, you can see a camera feed uh, featuring Mary Sue and JK. Um, Mary Sue will always be doing uh, my Uh, interpretation, and JK will be doing everybody else's. Uh, So anyway, you might want to pop over and check that out. uh, And we're hoping that a lot of our friends in the deaf community are already doing that. All right. So the show today is about shyness. Let me tell you who's on it, Uh, joining us uh, from BBC Radio, um, uh, actually BBC Radio, Merseyside in Liverpool. uh, It's Joe Moran, Professor uh, of English and Cultural History at Liverpool, John Moore's University. He's the author of Shrinking Violence. The Secret Life of Shyness, uh, David Tolan, founder and director of the Anxiety Disorder Center at the Institute of Living. He's the author of Face Your Fears, a proven plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobias, and obsession. You'll also hear later on the show Susan Kane the author of Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking, and the founder of Quiet Revolution, which you can uh, learn more about at quietrev.com. All right. So, um, Joe Moran, I want you to get us started. Um, The the word shyness is a word we throw around a lot. Uh, I'm not sure we all exactly agree on what the definition is, or even if there is one single state that can be identified as shyness. So tell us what shyness is.
3: Well, I'm not sure I can. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think that the thing that uh, attracts me about the subject, apart from being shy myself, is It's partly that it is just so sort of nebulous and difficult to define, I suppose, um, inevitably in a way, because it's a very internalized thing. Um, But I think there's just something very human about it. I think it's about the accident of self-consciousness, is that that that's what defines us as humans, is that we have um, this capacity for what Darwin calls uh, self-attention. Um, we have the capacity to to think about ourselves and to think about what other people think about us, um, and yet we'll never know that for sure. We don't know what people think about us, so that's inevitably going to create anxiety. Um, but we're also all social animals. We we need other people as well, and we we need their approval and we need their sort of good opinion. So, I suppose it's in the sort of tension between those things that you have that you have something called shyness.
4: And and my sense is it's not this kind of um, ingrown state that's always with you, or at least always evident. For example, I am shy. People might find that surprising. Uh, I do a talk radio show. I appear in front of large audiences. Uh, But there are many situations in in which I'm shy, and it's usually the situations in which there isn't anything scripted. There's no real plan. I'm at a party, and I'm expected to make what's called small talk, uh, and I have no idea how to do that. So, Joe, my sense is that uh, a shy person is not always manifestly shy.
3: No, and I'm exactly the same. And I think that's a very common thing that shy people have: is to be um, uncomfortable with um, sort of social spontaneity or with uh, kind of places where the rules seem seem unclear. And when you when you're on the radio, when someone asks you a question, or when you're doing a lecture, as I as I do, I'm a I'm a lecturer. Um, you sort of have permission to speak, so there's a kind of context and a sort of. Certainty about it that's somehow reassuring. But um, yes, to answer your question, I mean shyness is is very situational. It's very it's very contextual. And I think um, actually people who aren't shy don't really get that. They don't they don't sort of understand why it can sort of ebb and flow in these seemingly quite um, irrational ways. You're not kind of a, you, you you can't explain why you're shy in one context and then suddenly you're okay in another. Shyness can, under certain circumstances, even
4: kill you. Um, and so, by the way, the story I'm about to get you to tell, Joe, is one that I completely, 100% identify with and have had more or less the same experience. But tell uh, the uh, story of what Dr. Harry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, claimed about certain people.
3: Uh, yeah, this is basically that... Um uh people who were who were choking uh from food in in a restaurant he'd he'd heard of this this is kind of how he what inspired him to 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 um to to create the sort of Heimlich maneuver um uh, some a, a man was choking in a restaurant um and he was so embarrassed about this that he actually got up and left the room and died um and so it, it, and and I can I can absolutely identify with that. Um, there's something about well, embarrassment is often about sort of losing control of your body in some way, and choking is one example of that. It's it's uh, you're kind of returned to bodilyness. You're 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 kind of revealed to be the sort of animal self that you are, and for some reason. I don't think it's just shy people I think I think all humans find that difficult they find that embarrassing
4: I think also that shyness in some ways um, how can I put this, Joe? Uh, I, there, there's a, a way in which people who are shy are dealing with a very high social cost of certain social interactions. For a person who's not shy, maybe walking into a party where he doesn't know too many people and starting up a conversation, there isn't a big cost to that person at, at some real existential level. Whereas maybe for somebody who is shy, the cost is much higher. The, uh, the effort, the whatever it take, takes uh, out of you, whatever it, it extracts from you. And for me, the social cost of... I've been in a couple of situations where I thought I might be choking a little bit. And I thought, the social cost of identifying myself as somebody who needs the Heimlich maneuver, who's choking in this public environment is so high, I think I would rather just go off in the bathroom and take my chances. Um, And that sounds completely insane. Uh, And um, so David Tolan, um, obviously, if it's that dangerous, it's not that dangerous most of the time. But there is... A consequence to being shy, and it it can impede you professionally. It can impede you mm-hmm. socially. So, D- Dave, I'm assuming this is something people want to get rid of. Can they? I'm
0: gonna, Joe. I'm gonna ask Dave this question. Uh, can they get rid of it? Well, I think we need to distinguish between shyness as a very basic human emotion, and the extreme variation of shyness that some people come to treatment for. You mm-hmm. know, shyness like any other emotion, is there for a reason, be it fear or anger or sadness, and you can't erase and nor should you erase those emotions from you. What we see, like with any kind of emotion, is that they're distributed on a continuum, you know, sadness, fear, anger, whatever. Everybody feels it from time to time, and some people feel it more than others, and there are some people who feel it so often or so intensely that it starts to really hinder their functioning. Those are the kinds of people that we tend to talk about as having what we refer to as social phobia or social anxiety disorder. Um, Now, it's, it's not most people, but what we see is that when somebody has social anxiety disorder, there are treatments that can get them back to functional status, which doesn't necessarily mean that you erase the shyness. It, it's rather helping a person to work around the shyness so that it doesn't get in the way of their life. Um, we're
4: going to come back to that question uh, about how much it needs to be address, addressed and, and how bad it has to be before maybe it's it's something that you seek help for and, and how much... We could fold shyness into a concept we could call maybe psychodiversity, you know, that we're all a little bit different. It's good that we're all a little bit different. Uh, But, you know, Joe Moran, one of the questions that I have about this too is, you know, in in some ways shyness seems to be tied in my mind to certain ideas about self-worth. I mean, in the situations where I find myself being shy, it's almost as though I don't believe somebody would want to, for example, have a conversation with me about almost nothing. That if I weren't prepared with lots of interesting information, you know, if I didn't have kind of a game plan where I could either entertain or, or inform the person, the person wouldn't want to talk to me. But the other argument about shy people is it's more they're hyper-conscious of how people are reacting to them at any given moment. I don't, how do you, Joe, parse that question?
3: Well, I certainly have the same problem, and I think it's a very common uh thing is is the fear of bo- boring other people um uh, Garrison Keeler, who's a very shy writer and um, became a broadcaster, always said that uh, what he loved about radio is that you couldn't uh, you couldn't see people yawning or looking at their watches you know you sort of had permission to spit and you didn't you weren't you weren't sort of confronted with that with that problem um so i i th- i certainly think that 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 is that is an issue and of course it it um it becomes it kind of becomes self fulfilling um i mean you can have boring people who talk too much and don't listen to people but you can also become boring just because you've got that sort of internal self defeating monologue going on um the, the odd thing about shyness is, uh, is i think that sometimes it can be an odd mix of um of timidity and confidence um and I I think that one of the traps that shy people sometimes fall into, and I've probably fallen into it in the past, is this, is a is a kind of um, is a sort of stubbornness about about not wanting to have conversations with people that are meaningless, um, not wanting to do small talk, or thinking that small talk is somehow um, is some kind of is somehow sort of artificial and false. Which in a way it is, but it's also necessary. Um, so I think it's this kind of odd thing where you yes you do worry about boring other people but you also uh, I think I think sometimes you can uh, you you can just not want to participate in that sort of falsity.
4: Um although Joe one thing I learned from your book is that you if you and I had grown up in a Scandinavian culture there would be less pressure on us to be any good at this you know this rather flippant kind of small talk. They don't value that as highly. Uh, They think that when you're talking about something, you should actually be saying something.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are different cultures that have different attitudes to talk and also to silence as well. I think in Sweden, they call uh, small talk kalprata, which means cold talk. And there is probably a bit more of a sense that when you talk to someone, it should be meaningful and momentous in some way. Um, they also have a kind of different attitude to silence, actually. They tend to shut up when someone else is speaking, whereas when we speak and listen in, say, Britain or America, we would tend to do those little ums and ums and nodding our heads and just to kind of show that we've sort of understood and that we, we're kind of empathetic. And they wouldn't tend to do that as much in the Nordic countries. So they, they probably do have a different attitude to, yes, what, what, what conversation means and also what silence means.
4: So you know, one of the things in your book that you – well, you just mentioned Garrison Keillor. You you set up this really great um, kind of apostolic succession of, of shy people in American culture that uh, Garrison Keillor was very much a big fan of Peanuts and of Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz, creator of Peanuts, was also a very shy person. Garrison Keillor also uh, made his first mark on the world by getting a stor- story accepted in The New Yorker. It was a, sto- a comic piece about a shy boy. It was accepted by Will William Shawn, then the editor of the New Yorker, who was famously shy, uh, and. Uh, And The New Yorker was home to other shy people like E.B. White. There's this kind of sense that there's here's this coterie uh, of shy people. But among the people that I've mentioned just now and that you mentioned in the book uh, is Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Um, Let's hear uh, Charlie Brown a stand in for Charles Schultz in probably the place that his shyness came out most vividly and poignantly, and that was in his yearning for the little red haired girl.
0: Happy Valentine's Day. You know why that little red-haired girl never notices me? Because I'm nothing. When she looks over here, there's nothing to see. How can she see someone who's nothing? You're depressed, aren't you?
4: So, uh, Dave Tolan, you know, you listen to that. And it seems to me that if you attempt to treat shyness, there's two ways that you can do it. You can walk the person through the situations in which his shyness comes out. Um, Or you can try to figure out what's underlying it. It wouldn't necessarily be that same uh, sense of worthlessness that Charlie Brown has. It might be like a whole host of other things. So, Joe, I'm going to ask Dave Tolan about this. Um, Dave, how, how would you approach somebody who was paralyzingly and painfully? Uh,
0: shy. Yeah. When, when you get to the the topic of somebody with social phobia, I, I think it's it's it, it covers both bases that you're describing. The first is you probably do need to walk the person through some of the situations that elicit their anxiety. So if the person is becoming, you know, terribly avoidant of talking to new people or meeting them, then, you know, it would not be at all uncommon for me to walk that person up and down the halls of the anxiety disorder center at the Institute of Living and introduce them to all the people there and have them practice shaking hands and making small talk. And it's uncomfortable at first, but after a while they get used to it and it's not so bad. That's a, that's a piece of it.
4: Systematically desensitizing them. to That's them. the basic idea. Yeah.
0: And and the second piece is is to try to understand and address the reasons why this is happening. And the whys, you know, are... are varied, but they could involve, for example, a person tending to always jump to conclusions and try to read other people's minds and and make the worst possible uh, interpretation that they could. And, And maybe we want to start to challenge that and have them rethink it sometimes the person does have a very poor sense of self but not always Uh, sometimes it's just they have this really debilitating fear that something they do is going to look stupid or embarrassing and it's just going to be terribly humiliating and and all of those are, are things that we have to address when we're treating somebody who's at the extreme end of this shyness continuum
4: you know joe it probably is worth noting that that, that sense of a total lack of self-worth, uh, that chasm, that abyss from which we hear Charlie Brown's voice echoing up, it is, is not, I mean, as you suggested, I think, it's not consistently a problem. There are shy people, you and I might be even two of them, who feel as though the real danger is that the world won't appreciate us, that we won't, that we won't be given an opportunity to make understood how interesting and insightful and funny and charming we are, that that's one of the things that ties us into knots, Joe.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with David about about shyness being on a continuum, and I certainly wouldn't uh, at all um, say that you shouldn't help and indeed treat people who are uh, who suffer from it in that ex, in an ex, extremely debilitating way, and I do think actually there is a sort of um, it is it, well I see this a lot with uh, with some of the my stu- the students that I teach it, it is it is um, it is a problem at the moment is is kind of social anxiety and I don't quite know why I don't know why it's suddenly become this kind of um, this this huge problem, um, but yeah I think people who are shy I think I think one of the things that that makes that sort of perhaps makes me resistant to treatment is it just feels so centrally part of you. um it just seems so much a part of your identity, such a kind of tenacious and resilient thing that it's it, it it's hard to be treated for something that you sort of feel like if you if you um if it was taken away from you, you'd almost become somebody else. Um, so it's 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 hard, I think, to sort of. To find that moment when it does become something that's so debilitating that you do need to get help, and of course, um, f- uh, probably for me, there have been moments in my life when that's been true, um, but it probably isn't true at the moment. So it's it's just difficult to make that judgment. It's wh- when it when it becomes when is it something that's just part of the normal range of human experience, and that's actually quite a good thing because you know the, the, there's there's nothing wrong with. Uh, aspects of life that are painful. It's just part of life. And when does it tip over into something that you do actually need to get help for?
4: You know, Joe, uh, well, no, actually, I'm going to ask Dave Tolan this question. Um, Dave Tolan, there was a period of time not too long ago where even some of the uh big pharmaceutical companies got uh, interested in this and the notion that there was something called social anxiety disorder it could be treated by paxil a drug normally thought of as an, uh, uh, of as an
0: antidepressant
4: i don't know what was your what is your reaction to that i sense mm-hmm. that there's less of that out there right now
0: Dave. Uh, it, it's it certainly is there and and you know there was a backlash when all that came out too and a lot of people said oh you're you're pathologizing shyness and and I think some of that criticism is well-deserved, but, but I also want to make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I mean, like with any other emotion, you know, anything can be taken to an extreme, and even emotions that are a basic part of you and maybe even are really great and wonderful and helpful parts of you, if taken to ex- an extreme and if they become inflexible, they can start to really damage your functioning. And that's that's the point at which we, we draw the line and say maybe this this needs to to be brought back you know into a, a healthier range. Joe made a good point of, of you know not wanting to give up his shyness and, and and I think that that's a fair point and and nor should he have to you know that is a part of you and just as all of your emotions are a part of you. So you know the aim of of any kind of treatment, whether it's it's you know, medication treatment or psychological therapy, is, is not to erase, an emotion or a particular part of you. I mean, just if we were treating for some, somebody for depression, we wouldn't say I want to take all the sadness away from you so that you never feel it again. The idea is we'd, we'd like to get you to the point where you can experience this in a way that doesn't hurt you and it doesn't get in your way sometimes you can just figure out little tricks. Um, let's hear Garrison Keillor since we've
4: been talking about him so much. And obviously his powder milk Bits biscuit commercials are all about a product that gives shy people the strength to do what needs to be done. But let's hear Garrison Keillor talking to Jane Pauley about his own actual shyness. If you take off your glasses, you can't see them. And they won't look like people anymore." She said, they'll, they'll look like flowers on a hillside. <laughs> and uh, and she was right. And when you learn that you don't have to be afraid of people you can't see, you've taken a step towards broadcasting. You see. All right, so yes, broadcasting is really great that way, uh, that you sit often alone in a room talking to a microphone, although what have I done here as a shy person? I filled the studio with all kinds of people operating cameras and two uh, absolutely wonderful American Sign Language interpreters, uh, and Dave Tolin's here with me. So, um, But you know, I mean, Joe Moran, this does get us into the area of little tricks, right? Little tricks that we learn. So you describe in your book the fact that you often will maybe jot down... A script, if you're even having to make a pretty routine call, you know, about your electrical bill or something, uh, you know, to jot down a little script so you'll know what you're going to say on this phone call. That's a little trick or a little crutch. The question becomes, when does the crutch become an impediment? When do you reach a point, Joe, where you think, I don't want to be a person who has to write out a script for a routine telephone call?
3: Well, I, yeah, that's never much helped. I have to say. I I, I, I I also do a little notebook of things to to kind of talk to people about, um, and again, that doesn't really really help because conversation has to be has to be spontaneous, really. Um, I, the only trick I've I've developed really is just to obsess about it a bit less. Um, I suppose this kind of goes back to. To, to whether shyness can be cured, and 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 actually, uh, I, I do think there is there is a part of it that's very sort of resilient and tenacious. And uh, um, all of the people that I've written about in in the book, including Garrison Keillor, are probably as shy now as they've ever been, They're shy at the end of their lives and, and at the start. Um, but they did find ways of kind of finessing it and kind of working around it. Um, and my way is just. To be a little bit sort of zen about it, um, and just to sort of say, well, that is part of me, um, and I don't try and sort of defeat it, because I think if you do that, you end up a bit defeated. Um, uh, if you try and sort of give it up, like you're like you're giving up smoking, um, I don't think that quite works. But I think if you if you just sort of obsess about it less, uh, I think it it does help, because the point about shyness is that it's kind of circular and self-fulfilling it sort of generates itself that's the sort of odd thing about it the more you think about it the more it sort of becomes true it's a bit like that the more you blush that that if you blush you blush more because you're blushing um, so my only trick really has been just to sort of say well that is what I'm like and it does seem to sort of help uh, because I can just um, then get on with thinking about something else and just talking to people and be t- trying to be interested in other people as well I mean I suppose I'm I've sort of become a bit of a social observer. My my previous books have all been about the everyday. So uh, actually just being interested in the world and being interested in what other people are saying does make you less kind of uh, absorbed in yourself.
4: Dave Tolan, you were nodding when I was yeah. talking before about that whole question. I mean, I'll just quickly tell a story that one of the parties that I go to that sometimes make, makes me anxious, I went to it right before Thanksgiving, and I brought with me, it's a big party with like 300 people at it, I brought with me this little uh, toy turkey that, I don't know, if you touched it in his chest, its eyes would light up, and it would go, Whoa! you know, it would make a gobbling noise. And and then I just walked around having people do that and having very cursory kinds of conversations with them. And to me, I was having a pretty good time because I had this gimmick with me and I didn't really have to worry too much about it. Although as I look back about it, I look back at it. There's something sad about that too. That that was my idea of, of a good time as opposed to engaging a little bit more genuinely
0: with people. That's interesting. I, it's, it's funny as you were describing that. I, I, I... I found myself thinking, that doesn't sound really uh, typical of a shy person to walk around with some uh, light-up turkey. But let me ask, I mean, do do you get a sense that you were doing that so that you wouldn't have to engage with people as much? You wouldn't have to talk to them?
4: Absolutely. Or or that it would take the place of my having to have – you know, a lighthearted
0: conversation with people. So we we come up with a lot of these little tricks and, and we sometimes refer to these as safety behaviors. And they're, they're little, I, I guess, another way of co- describing them is micro avoidances. It's not as avoidant as refusing to go to the party uh, or refusing to talk to people, but it is little things that you do to hang back and make it seem okay. You know, so... Uh, And and believe me, I'm I'm right there with you. I don't have the turkey, but my thing, I'm I'm also shy at parties, and I'll just hang out by the buffet or something like that and not really engage with people as much. And these are more subtle kinds of avoidance. And while they do sometimes get you through it, in the long run, they potentially become self-defeating because they kind of prevent you from overcoming the fear. If you you think about the – you use the crutch – Mm. metaphor. And, you know, if you have a legitimately broken leg and you use a crutch, that's fine. But if you could imagine continuing to use crutches, despite the fact that your legs are healthy, and you did that for a really long time, after a while, your leg muscles would start to atrophy. You would actually create a situation, but through your continued use of the crutches, you you set yourself up so that you need the crutches. And I, that's why I, I like, uh, I like Joe's idea where he's he's being more zen about it. And what he's describing is acceptance, recognizing I feel a certain way. How I feel is how I feel. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean anything, you know, untoward about me. This is just part of who I am. And one of the things that he said that I, I think was really helpful is that he made a point of becoming interested in other people and paying attention to other people. And, and that's, I think— Something that gets lost a lot because when people are really paralyzed with shyness, they start to just pay attention to themselves. You know, it's almost like they're watching themselves from some external camera and they don't really fully uh, appreciate or pay attention to the person that they're talking about.
4: You know, I knew it would turn out that I was less mentally healthy than the person who was
0: on the show as a shy person. This is um, because I, I get to define what is mentally that's healthy. Right. No, that's, I, I'm, that's I'm the with rule. you.
4: I'm with you. Joe's got a better approach to this than I do. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're talking to Joe Moran. There's going to be plenty more of Joe and uh, David. Joe is the author of Shrinking Violets, The Secret Life of Shyness. Uh, David Tolan is the author of Face Your Fears, a proven plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobias, and obsessions. I just want to quickly say before we go to break that, you know, we have this other audience that's watching this on Facebook Live and reading Joe's book. There's an awful lot in Joe's book that has to do with speaking and talking and, you know, and, and, and using, your, using your voice to communicate with people uh, and, and how that uh, plays into the whole matrix of shyness. And I'd be fascinated to know, and you can just maybe type up some comments on Facebook if you feel like it. How does this work in the deaf community? How does the deaf community how do people in the deaf community perceive varying degrees of shyness? Obviously, some people who are deaf are more shy than other people. It might be very interesting to hear. And anything else you want to say about the experience you're having uh, watching this broadcast on Facebook Live would be great too. And when we come back, there's going to be more uh, David and more Joe, but first you're gonna hear Susan Cain, author of Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking and the founder of the Quiet Revolution which you can read about at quietrev.com You know, most of this show is about shyness, but there's a sort of parallel word that means something like shyness, but not exactly the same thing. And to help us tell the difference uh, is Susan Cain, uh, co-founder of Quiet Revolution and the author of Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. So, Susan Cain, first of all, welcome to our conversation here.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Colin.
4: So let's start with that uh, difference or distinction. Uh, How do we make a distinction between shyness and introversion?
2: So introversion is more a question of where do you get your energy? And um, introverts tend to feel kind of at their most alive and in a state of equilibrium when things are just a little bit quieter around them. And shyness is more about a fear of social judgment and a kind of excessive self-consciousness and a tendency when you're looking at um, a neutral expression on somebody's face to read into it feelings of disapproval.
4: I wonder also about introverts. I I classify myself as an introvert and many of the people who work on this show as introverts. And it's a strange thing for me to say about myself because I'm a rather public person and often I'm in front of an audience of 2,000 people and I'm not bothered by that. But is some of it also having a task that you know how to do and, and know what's required of you? I mean, I'm very uncomfortable in situations that are just purely social and I don't know what I'm supposed to do.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I actually hear that from a lot of introverts. And I will tell you, specifically, I hear it from a lot of journalists and from kind of my fellow public speakers on the lecture circuit. Uh, there's a lot of introverts out there, and I think what happens is it's exactly as you say. Introverts will get really interested in a particular idea or a particular skill or medium or whatever it is and, and really develop mastery there, and, but tend to prefer environments where there isn't a massive amount of uncertainty.
4: Yeah, and and I I also sort of wonder about whether there's sort of um, a maximum number of people that the introvert can handle, and and maybe it has to do also whether the people are familiar or not. Let me give you a. a uh, case study and you can help me out with this. So okay. we, we used to have a meeting here at this radio station. We we kind of opened up the idea of, of a show meeting to involve multiple shows and multiple staffs of shows. And then people would come in from marketing and other parts of the building and plop themselves down at this meeting. And pretty soon there were about 30 people meeting in this kind of open floor plan office. And I noticed that the people who work on my show, who are introverts almost to a, a one, weren't talking anymore. You know, if four or five of us are sitting in a little room, they'll all talk like mockingbirds. But in this situation, I don't know whether it was that they didn't know everybody else as well, or whether some numerical threshold had been exceeded uh, that pushed them beyond their their comfort level.
2: Yeah, I I would say it's both. There was actually an informal study that was conducted um, on the numerical side that found, you know, as the numbers go up, you can track the introverts growing more and more uncomfortable and less likely to participate. And then there's absolutely, as you say, the familiarity level with who the other people are. So it's a little bit of both. You know, there was a, a study also that was done out of the Kellogg School that came out recently that found that in your typical meeting, you have three people doing 70% of the <laughs> talking, which is really alarming when you think about it.
4: It's know? a it's so, a power law. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's one of the things we always try to work on um, with Quiet Revolution with a companies who we work with because, you know, we think it's kind of impossible to get the best ideas uh, out there if we're relying on meeting structures where, by definition almost, you're only going to have very few people speaking up.
4: And that brings me to that whole question. I mean, when I would bring this up with um, other people and who are part of the leadership here, and and who are very good leaders and and very aware of the people around them, this seemed to be kind of a blind spot. I would say, you know, a person uh, X, person's X, Y, Z, and A, B, and C, they're very shy or they're introverts. This is not a natural environment for them. You know, maybe we need to think a little bit about that. And in the nicest possible way, the people that I was talking to often said, well, they should get over that which is not something you'd say about other things that inhibit people's performances in jobs necessarily. But I'm sure this is something that you encounter a lot, this notion that, well, that's something you could could just have to get past that. I mean, man up, cowboy up, and and push ahead.
2: I do hear that sometimes, although the good news is that I'm hearing it less and less, I think, as awareness of temperamental difference is starting to really spread and, and deepen throughout the workplace. So what we always tell the companies who we're working with is that the differences between introverts and extroverts really are neurobiological, uh, they're wired in, and introverts are wired to think before they speak, uh, want to process before they, they really develop their ideas, they're at their best when things are quieter and start to kind of get an overwhelmed feeling that, that impedes cognitive ability uh, as things get a little crazier. And extroverts, by the way, have the opposite set, uh, set of strengths and liabilities. So for extroverts, their nervous systems are kind of in their sweet spot when there's quite a bit of activity buzzing around them. Um, when things get too quiet and they've got to like sit down and you know tackle a memo or something like that, that's where they need to fight the tendency to feel listless and sluggish. Introverts and extroverts each make up about 50% of the workforce. So I think if you're an enlightened manager, you know at this point, you want to look at that by thinking, okay, how can I set this up so that it's working for everybody?
4: Uh, that's a big if, though. Uh, we're talking to Susan Kane, co-founder of Quiet Revolution, <laughs> and, and the author of Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. You know, we look at the list of people who are at least putatively introverts, and it's uh, everybody from Albert Einstein to Mahatma Gandhi to Bill Gates uh, to Charles Darwin, and you sort of wonder how the world functions without any introverts, and what are the extroverts even accomplishing? But, you know, Susan, this whole dynamic, it doesn't really start in the workplace. It starts in school. You know, very early on in school, there's this whole idea that, well, you know, left to her own devices, Nicole would just never contribute to the class discussion, Um, and and I don't know, I mean, I haven't been a sixth grader for a long time, but have things gotten any better there in terms of the, the stigmatizing of people who, who just don't talk in, in large groups?
2: So it, it got worse for a while. i say it's getting a little bit better now. Like at Quiet Revolution, we started a quiet school network where we're working with schools on really understanding temperamental diversity, and we're finding schools to be very receptive to it. But it's also true in schools that um, there is an increasing vogue for group work and the uh, belief that all creative projects and, and great learning increasingly should be done in groups. And We're not against group work, but we think that there should be much more of a mix. Uh, we know that there are some students who really prefer to work autonomously. So the, that, that current vogue is working against introverts. And, and there is also, I think there's a sense that among schools... Uh, a really understandable sense that if they want to prepare kids for today's workforce, that they should be encouraging them to speak up more in class. But we encourage them to look at classroom engagement instead of classroom participation, recognizing that there are, just as is true in the workforce, there's a million different ways to make your presence felt, uh, to contribute to the people around you, and to get good work done. It's not all about how many times you raise your hand.
4: Um, I'll give you an example of one way I try to solve this problem when I teach. And yeah. you, can, you can tell me whether it's a good, a good idea or a bad idea. So what, what I do, I teach a seminar at a college level. A lot of my students are adults. A lot of them are introverted. What I have them do during the week is blog their homework. Uh, blog their observations about the the subject that we're studying. So as I head into class on Tuesday night, I know some of the things that they're thinking about. So I can turn to Nicole and say, Nicole, I know you thought you know you had some interesting things to say about how polling works in this situation. And Nicole, who probably would have sat there for three hours without jumping into the conversation, can can talk. I, I've asked her a question that I already know she has something to say uh, about. And and I found that in at least in my classes, everybody talks. You just almost have to give some people permission to say something that you know that they know.
2: Yep, I think that is a really brilliant technique, what you just uh, described. And you might also want to let them know in advance, hey, Nicole, um, today I'm going to be asking you to talk about polling, because I know you have so many interesting things to say about it, especially if it's a student who you sense might not want to be called on out of the blue, but wants time to think about it beforehand. But either way, I think that's right. And for a lot of students, it is a question of permission. And, And by the way, that's true across cultures, too. It's, it's not only a temperamental question there, but um, there are students who come from cultures that would tell them that you don't want to be taking up the class of time with your own thoughts and your own questions. You know, that, that would be seen as rude and selfish.
4: Um, let me ask you one last question, Susan Cain, uh, and that is has to do with the whole question of leadership. I think we, yeah. ha- we assume that leaders... Are extroverts, but then if you examine that a little bit more closely, well, I mean Barack Obama probably not an extrovert, probably a little bit more of an introvert. Uh, yeah. Bill Bill Clinton, one of the ultimate extroverts, I believe our current uh, pr- president also probably fits into the role of extrovert. But it's not, you know, it's not a one to one correlation whether you're going to be uh, an effective leader or not.
2: No, not at all. Um, and in fact, there's a whole bunch of really interesting studies finding that in certain circumstances, you have introverted leaders delivering better outcomes than extroverts do. So it's not one-to-one at all. <laughs> there was actually one study that found that more charismatic leaders get higher salaries, charismatic CEOs get higher salaries than their introverted peers, uh, but they don't deliver better results. I, I think the real key is to get people thinking in terms of, it's if, if not extroverts should be leaders, introverts should be scientists, you know, drop all that and instead think, okay, figure out what is the thing I really want to do, and then how do I draw on my own natural strengths in order to get it done? You know, and if you look at leaders from Barack Obama to Bill Gates to Rosa Parks, all of them were introverts, that's what they were doing. They were using their own unique strengths to make it happen.
4: Well, Susan Kane, you and I used our own unique strengths to make this interview happen. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but we did it. Uh, so, co founder of The Quiet Revolution and the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, it's time for us to stop talking. But thank you for talking to me today.
2: Thank you so much.
4: Okay. Thanks, Susan.
3: Bye. Bye bye.
1: The show was produced by the shy and frequently misunderstood Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with special thanks to all the people who helped bring this show to the Deaf community. They would be Heather Brandon, Joe Koss, Frankie Graziano, Sam Hockaday, Tucker Ives, Ryan Karen King, Josh Nalea, Katie Talarski, and our interpreters, some source interpreting, Pat Clark, Janet Knopf, and Mary Sue Owens. The part of Bill Curry was played by Morrissey. Tomorrow we talk about the mysterious Melania Trump. And now, back to Colin.
4: Okay, I've been told to both say this and to not say it. I'm gonna go with saying it. So we're gonna continue doing this uh, programming where once in a while we get on Facebook Live, with our wonderful interpreters and provide this programming to a deaf audience. We're pretty sure we're going to do it Tuesday, March 7th, equipment and, and production permitting. On uh, Tuesday and March 7th, it'll be a Josh Nilea-produced show about UFOs. Uh, that's where we think we're going to go next. Right now, we're talking about shyness. Uh, in the studio with me is uh, Dave Tolan, founder and director of the Anxiety Disorder Center at the Institute of Living and adjunct professor of psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. He's the author of Face Your Fears, A Proven Path Proven plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobia, and obsessions. Uh, Joining us from the BBC studios in Liverpool, Joe Moran, professor of English and cultural history at Liverpool John Moores University, author of two books, most recently, Shrinking Violets, The Secret Life of Shyness. So, um, Dave, I'm going to start with you on this. I mean, listening to what uh, Susan was saying, it does raise this question of, you know, who, who gets to, to, to decide what's normal? If shyness and introversion are a departure from normal, you know, how much of a departure do they have to be to be you know, sort of, I, I don't know,
0: abnormal? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it's, it's one that we could raise for virtually any emotion that people feel. Um, My general sense is that normal is an awfully big range and there's room uh, for people with varying levels of shyness just as there's room for people with varying levels of sadness or fear or anger or anything else. Um, It's always a bit arbitrary, but where we tend to draw the line is in the area of functioning. So if the person is shy yet they function okay, we would usually consider that to be within the broad range of normal. Uh, it's, It's only when you start seeing that the person is just miserable. And that they they can't socialize in the way that they would like or they can't work in the way that they would like or they can't concentrate because they are so socially preoccupied and things are starting to go badly for them because of it. That's usually where we would say you've got something that needs to be addressed.
4: So, um, Joe Moran, time's running short, but I really wanted to spend a couple of minutes anyway on this uh, question that this famed social science researcher Philip Zimbardo uh, talked about uh, the coming of an ice age, uh, predicting that technology would make it uh, so easy for people to withdraw from one another, uh, that you'd see more shyness or more things that we associate anyway with shyness. Although I think there's a uh, an accompanying question, social media may give people who are shy in physical Physical encounters the opportunity to be much more uh, demonstrative uh, or or exhibitive uh, of their own feelings and emotions
3: well that's right I mean it's a very, it has very complex effects I mean Philip Zimbardo who's one of the big experts on China's actually made that prediction about the new ice age at the end of the 90s uh, and it's interesting that was kind of we had email then we had ATMs we had some of this kind of virtualized technology that prevented or, or, or stopped human interaction but we didn't have um, smartphones and we didn't have the social network and those are actually things that have that have led people to um, blur the boundaries between their public and private lives and actually to be very confessional albeit with an avatar albeit at one remove so I think technology has um, has very complex effects Um, It can make you more shy or it can actually, it can enable your shyness, but it can also alleviate your shyness. Um, I tend to think that technology is, I mean, people tend to think that technology changes everything, that you have sort of innovations that come in and they they sort of change your personalities. I think that actually um, there's a kind of, um, there's a sort of uh, fallacy there, which is to assume that. our our age is is the most interesting age and it's just kind of changed everything. I actually think that human nature is pretty resilient and I think these problems are pretty resilient. We just kind of find different ways of passing them.
4: All right. We're going to have to stop there. Although I really do recommend uh, both of the books by both of our guests here. Uh, Dave Tolan's Face Your Fears, Joe Moran's Shrinking Violets. I'm going to schedule some time with Dave Toland so that I can become the kind of person who doesn't bring animatronic turkeys to parties so that he'll be able to interact with people. I'm going to learn to be a normal person, whatever that is. Uh, special thanks to JK and, and Mary Sue. It's so much fun to have you in the studio doing this interpreting. Uh, let us know on Facebook, live on the Colin McEnroe Show page how you feel about that whole experiment. We'll be back tomorrow with a very deep look at Melania Trump.
1: That's why
4: What, Dr. Wolf?
1: The gene? For shyness, look through the microscope.
4: I don't see. It's
1: right there. Where? Oh, I see it, hiding behind two other genes. Aw, because it's so shy.